it's great to be in the house of the Lord this morning. Am I the only one who thinks that? Is it good to be in the house of the Lord this morning? A question that I've been asking myself this week a lot. What do I mean when I say the word good? Perhaps at times the goodness is lost on us. Perhaps at times our experience is clouded by our own expectations of what we might receive. But I would challenge us to think, as the text invites us to reflect as well this morning, that the goodness cannot be shaped primarily or only by our own experiences, expectations, and longings. But the life to which we are invited to participate was never ours to begin with and is not ours alone, but is something that we share, something that we experience in community, in the lives of others. In these moments, I am reminded that I cannot see the whole picture on my own, that I cannot experience all that is offered by myself. For if I try, I will miss so much of what God has to offer. I also appreciate this morning the challenge and struggle, Riley, as you talked about money. A tough, a tough subject. Not just to talk about in the church, but to talk about in our lives. I hope if you're new with us this morning that you sense that we understand that all things that happen in this service to be a part of our worship. Worship being the very act of letting go we might say of dethroning the things that we have perhaps put on the throne other than Christ. The act of giving is a, is a weekly reminder for me of the ways that I perhaps put my own desires, my own longings, my own need for security above other things. And so as we continue our worship together today through the reading of this text, through the reflection on the words that God has for us, through the prayers that we will close our service with through the music that we will sing together. My hope is that we would come into a space like this and acknowledge the things that we perhaps have given priority to. That we know that this hour of our week is not the only times in which we are formed. It is not the only times in our week in which we are invited to prioritize something. That if we were honest with ourselves, we would acknowledge that each and every moment something vies for our attention. Something asks for our priority. Something asks for our worship. So we come into this space as a way to ask, Lord, help us to worship you alone. Help us to deny the things that we perhaps have given too much space in our lives. Would you help us to embody the things to which you are calling us, the ways of life that we cannot do faithfully on our own. Before we read the text this morning, I want to reflect on a couple different thoughts with you. One of my favorite things to do with people when I'm getting to know them, when I'm sitting at a dinner table with you sharing a meal, is asking about where you grew up, asking about the traditions, the things that shaped you. Conversations that always reveal similarities between my life and yours, but also reveal key differences. That it doesn't matter where we grew up, we could have grown up in the houses next door to each other. Difference is always bound to emerge. That experiences can be drastically different. 
that any of you that have or is currently raising a child know this tension very well. When kids gather together and inevitably the comparison game begins. Well, my mom lets me watch as much TV as I want, right? You know this tension. And while that is assuredly not true, right? We all have rules and regulations and expectations in our household. This does reflect the diversity of household expectations. In the reading of our text today, we should remember back to the places that shaped us, the people that raised us, whether it was filled with joy, laughter, growth, or if it was filled with pain, loss, uncertainty. Wherever we found ourselves as children, those things shape our expectations of today and lead us to where we are today. In conversations with religious leaders in the text that we find ourselves reading this morning, Jesus would come to describe those, of it, those who would follow him as children of the resurrection. In other words, saying that the ones who would follow him, in fact, are to be raised in his household, raised with a certain set of expectations and opportunities. Being raised at that house would prioritize one thing above all else, and that was resurrection. We all know in the process of raising children, there's hopes and expectations we might have for them. Assuredly, my parents had hopes and expectations for me, some that I met, but surely some that I did not. Some longings that they had for the way my life might go, some things that I lived up to, some things I found on my own way. You know this tension as parents as you watch your children experience life in the way that they will or they might. Make the decisions that you hope they would but also make the decisions that you fear might lead them down paths you don't want. A reminder this morning that is so important for us as we see throughout time and time again throughout history, these tensions that we experience in households either make or break relationships between children and their families. But we come to this text today with an assurance as those who are invited into the household of Christ, as those invited to live in this way of resurrection, that the times in which we live into the values that Christ calls us to, but the times that we do not, the invitation remains constant. The invitation remains present for all of us in any time or place to pick up our cross and follow him. I think this text today, before we read it, we must assure these things as well. Text can present many challenges us for us in our desire to understand. And I think one of the most prominent challenges, if I'm honest with you, in the reading of Scripture is that our cultures are far too individualized. Prioritizing the own, our own individual experience above all else, and while surely there is place for our experience... We too readily can approach Scripture asking these questions first and foremost. How do I fit in the story? What does this say to me? Even in the way we reflect on the reading of Scripture, we might say, in reading my Bible this week. A challenge that is incredibly present even for those of us that might seek to fight against it. This challenge looms over us as we read texts like this. So I would suggest to us today a simple practice. As we read through Scripture, a practice that has become very important in my weekly reading of Scripture. As I far too quickly put myself at the center, 
The Lord has revealed to me a posture that has revealed something new to me about Scripture. We are surrounded by people this morning, some like us, some different, all with different pasts, histories, expectations, understandings of what the world is to be. And so in the reading of our text today, as we'll invite you to stand here in just a moment if you're able to, in the honor of the reading of God's Word, I would ask you to think about somebody, whether in this room or somebody in your life, that you know well enough to understand where they've come from. And as we read through this scripture today, would you ask this of the Lord? God, what does this text have to say to them? How might they hear the words that you have to say? How might these people hear your words and your expectations today? I'm going to invite you to stand as we read through the Gospel of Luke, if you're able. We'll read starting in verse 27 of chapter 20. It reads like this, Some Sadducees, those who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him a question. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife but no children, the man shall marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first married and died childless. Then the second and the third married her. And so in the same way, all seven died childless. Finally, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will be the woman? Who will the woman be? The seven had married her. Who? Jesus said to them, those who belong to this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of a place in that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Indeed, they cannot die anymore because they are like angels and are children of God, being children of the resurrection. And the fact that the dead are raised, Moses himself showed in the story about the bush, where he speaks of the Lord as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is God not of the dead, but of the living. For to him, all of them are alive. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him another question. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. A strange text for us this morning, but one, if I'm honest, there are times in the asking of questions that I could answer so well that people wouldn't ask me any more questions. <laughs> and we begin to wonder how Jesus answers this question, reveals actually how he feels about the very question to begin with. What's interesting about this question, while it seems maybe out of the blue for us, a strange scenario, rather bizarre, that the spouse of this woman would die and this woman would be left alone without children that the brother was to take on this woman as his very spouse. A very strange reality for us, even as we were sitting in staff meeting this week, maybe lamenting the idea of that taking place in our own lives today. We love our family, but maybe not quite that much. But this question is interesting. Because time and time again, when we read throughout the Gospels, we're so led to consider how the Gospels are unique parts of Scripture. And while they are, the question often asked, I read recently, an author asked this, what Bible did Jesus read? 
You know, the Bible that Jesus read was the Torah, the Old Testament, the words given to us that we have access to. And so oftentimes the situations that are at hand call us back to an attention of the Old Testament. This text is no different. In fact, require us to read with an honesty that I often fear we don't. That it saddens me in many of our traditions that a priority is created between the old and the new. That perhaps the Old Testament might be viewed as a sort of devolved work of Jesus that finally reaches its culmination. But in fact, I say to you today that the Old Testament stands to reveal the God that we see in the person of Jesus. That the work that God pushes towards, the culture that he's hoping to create, the expectations that he would have for his community of Israel stand no different as that which would be revealed in Jesus. And so this text calls us all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 25, an interesting command given to the nation of Israel. That in these sorts of scenarios that actually were, at, were very common, that, sp- that husbands would die leaving their, their wives childless, put women in a very vulnerable situation. If you know anything about this ancient culture, you would know that children were a place of security, of a future, like they promised that the household would endure, and without them, nothing could come forward. And so this situation, this woman in this story is vulnerable, in fear that nothing good might come from her life. And so in fact, God comes to this nation of Israel and says, I acknowledge that there are often people in your society that find themselves vulnerable. And here's my invitation for you, that in these sort of specific scenarios, I would ask that the brother would take on the spouse as his own, but then when that woman eventually was to bear a child, that this child would bear the name of their deceased parent. That it wasn't that the brother received his now wife for his own sake, for his own household, for his own good, but it was actually for the good of the one who had deceased the one who had died, the one who had passed on, that the name of the one who people had long lost hope would ever resurrect. In fact, new life could be found. This process went on to say that if the man said, I don't want any part of this, that I don't want any part of this woman's life to be a part of my life, I don't care if they're family, I don't care if they're vulnerable, I don't care if they're in need, that there was a process that they might go to the elders of their society and state this claim to those elders and say, not interested. I see that they're vulnerable. I see that they're in need, but not interested. And the process continued, that for this man to be granted this absolvement of responsibility, the widow would come to him, take off his sandal, and spit in his face. I don't know if any of you have been spit in the face before, but it's not a pleasant experience. This man would go on for the rest of his life to be called this, the house whose sandal was pulled off. Not a very attractive uh, sign to be put outside your front door. That in fact it was to be said that this household, because they had ignored their responsibility to care for the most vulnerable in society, would forever be known as ones without sandals. I don't know if you know anything about footwear. If you've ever gone without footwear, you know that it's pretty hard to walk places, especially in days like this. And so people without sandals in this harsh desert climate were in fact immobile, unable to go anywhere. 
that their household was now unable to produce life. So important is this command found in Scripture because it reveals something at the very essence of who this God is. That this God was hoping to create a community that not just saw the most vulnerable, but had the courage to respond. And so the Sadducees come with this question that might seem absurd to us, but is actually deeply rooted in the commands that God would have for his people. And this command reminds us that success, progress, and advancement, sometimes misconstrued in our Western societies as my own success, my own progress, my own advancement, revealed through the God in Scripture is inextricably linked to the care of those among us most in need. So for faith communities, we are challenged to ask both how we create an awareness of those in need around us, and two, how we might respond. Another interesting point about the Sadducees is that it's said that they denied the reality of resurrection. And in fact, they denied the very existence of this sort of doctrine in their everyday thought. That they denied that there was a possibility of life to come after a sort of end. Now, these Sadducees were in the minority of the Hebrew community because, in fact, the Hebrews had a very robust understanding of resurrection. Their concept of resurrection was rooted in the birth of children. For resurrection was affirmed in the moments that parents would pass away, but children would carry on. Affirmed in the moments when children would be born, that there would be hope that a household would continue. That all the life and joy that parents might experience deeply relied on the carrying out of their children. Deeply relied that the values that they held most important, what was at the essence of their household, would be carried on through the lives of those who would come after them. We experience a small piece of this way of thinking whenever we grieve the loss of a loved one. When we grieve someone who is no longer with us, yet we affirm in those moments that their life does not end with their death. We pray for a bodily resurrection that we believe will come one day, yet at the same time we know that their life carries on through the faithfulness of their descendants. Those of you in this room who have experienced loss as of late, those who we have mourned with in our own community, Know that your lives bring new life to a life that perhaps others might perceive is gone. This way of thinking was deeply embedded in the Hebrew community, deeply embedded in the way that God thought about the world, deeply embedded in the vision that Christ would come to reveal to all those who would follow him. So in Christ's response to the Sadducees' question, he refers to us as children of this resurrection affirming a couple of things. First, in Luke chapter 20, Christ is close to approaching the cross, something that would happen to him only a few chapters later, but he is also close to his resurrection. But what it also affirms, what we try to believe when we read through Scripture is that this is not simply something that we observe, not simply a presentation of a moment in history that we believe to be true, but something that we are invited to share in. That as children of this household, 
This household that is deeply rooted in the core value of new life, new breath of resurrection. That to be members of this household is to live as if this reality is true. To be the children of the one who longs for new life in the world. To be raised in the ways of resurrection by the one who longs to see us live in certain ways as his children. To not simply be consumers of a grace, but much more so givers. Ones who don't hoard the good work that is offered, but continually have the courage to ask who around us is in need of this life that has so radically changed me. One of my favorite poets who I've mentioned before by the name of Wendell Berry uses this phrase, practicing resurrection. A phrase that is continually convicting to me as it reminds me that this life to which God calls us is a practice. A daily renewal, a daily invitation to look around me and ask what areas of this world are in desperate need of new life. And then asking myself, do I live in a way that reflects that? Do I not just worship in spaces like this, but in fact, in my everyday interactions with people around me, do I live as if I actually believe this resurrection to be true? Do I live as a child that would make their parent proud? Do I live as one in this household who seeks to carry on that which has been passed? There's so much more that could be said about this passage. But one final thought that I would have for us this morning is that it's clear in the Sadducees' question that there's no genuine curiosity or desire to learn. That in fact, what's really happening in this story is a sort of political stunt. The Sadducees really are just seeking to dethrone or delegitimize Jesus' work. For they have garnered a certain political power and authority in their community. And Jesus has begun to disrupt that, so too they seek to reorient the world towards their way of thinking. It's clear in Jesus' response, as he doesn't approach their question, but in some ways recorrects it. A clear indication that this question has lost focus of what matters most to Jesus. Yesterday, a group of us here at Skyview attended a conference that was just really incredible, out at Ambrose, that sought to reflect on the last few years of ministry that have been deeply challenging, but also faithfully equip us to move forward in these new challenges, these new questions that are emerging in this era of the church. One of the questions that we were led to ask that has been rather convicting for me as of late is the question, why do we exist? Why does this whole place meet? Why do we do the work that we do? Why do we put time and resource and energy into this thing that we call Skyview Community Church? A question that I fear too often I can label with my own agendas and desires, my own hopes, my own things that I feel like need to be primary. And like the Sadducees, we can get distracted from the essence of our work. And if you've been around here at Skyview for long enough, you've heard that we have a set of values a set of beliefs and understandings, things that keep us grounded to the work that we feel like God is fostering in us. But on a much deeper level, this text reminds us that at the core of Jesus' teaching is a longing for his followers to be children of this very resurrection that he would live out.
to be a household of new life, to be a place that both witnessed to and embodied breath in a suffocating world. That if Skyview would be a place that would be known for its new life, a place that embodied and shared that which has been so freely given to us. My prayer for us today, as the worship team comes back forward, is that God would give us an awareness, an attentiveness, but even more so a courage to be the people that he is inviting us to be. What does it mean for us to not just witness the resurrection, to not just see the works of Jesus and celebrate from the sidelines but participate in this very work? To be a people that are attentive to the needs of the most vulnerable around us, a vision for community that God had from the very beginning of Scripture. What does it mean for us to live as children of this resurrected Lord? And what does it mean to stay focused on the things that matter most to God? I would ask us today to pray for new eyes, that in the midst of our own expertise, our own expectations, our own desires, that perhaps we would ask God to reorient ourselves to a calling that is bigger than any one of us. If this season has taught you anything, my hope is that it's this, that the church can never rely on any one of us. That in fact is a community of believers that would have the courage to admit when they cannot be all that God has for us. But a community at the same time that boldly is willing to step into the places that God calls us to in assurance that the one who calls will equip us for the very work. Christ closes these words by affirming this, and with this I close, that God is not a God of the dead, but of the living. That in the places that feel most dead to us, the places that feel most empty, but the places that feel in most need of breath, that is the God that we serve.